Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, your host for today's podcast, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Hans Solinger, MD, PhD. He is currently a professor of surgery at University of Wisconsin, and he has been since 1980. He has been NIH funded for various modes of diabetes treatment. He received the Pioneer Award from the ASTS in 2019, and only 14 surgeons in the history of transplantation have received this award. Hans also received the Pioneer Award with Nobel Prize winner Joe Murray from the National Kidney Foundation in 20, uh, 2004. He also received an honorary doctoral degree from the University of Leipzig, and he has several contributions in the field of pancreatic transplantation. He has developed Cell Sept, CEPT, the commercially most successful drug in the history of transplantation. He was the first physician to use rituximab in organ transplantation, as well as the first surgeon to use UW solution in kidney and pancreas transplantation. He also developed bladder drainage for pancreas transplantation, which dramatically improved patient outcomes. And he received the Richard Lillehigh Award from EPIDA in 2015. Hans has more than 600 peer-reviewed manuscripts and over 50 books and chapters. And side note and fun fact, he's the winner of the German giant slalom in skiing. Welcome, Hans Solinger. We are really excited to learn more about your new venture, Enslin. Well, welcome, Monica, and really appreciate to be on your podcast. Um, can you give a brief history of your interest in type 1 diabetes? Yeah, uh, Monica, my interest in diabetes actually started when my adopted brother at age seven, he's a young year younger than I am, Max, Max Solinger is his name, was his name. Uh, suddenly uh, I noticed that he had a very, very strange, sweet smell on his breath. And uh, at the same time, he became very thirsty. He drank like a fish and uh, he, he went to the bathroom every 15 minutes. And obviously my, my parents and his aunt, uh, because his mother had died a year before, uh, that's how we adopted him. Uh, we, we brought him to the doctor and the, the obvious diagnosis was that Max had developed type one diabetes. So we, we had all, all we, we had to go to a, to a diabetes camp we had the family had to learn about uh, at that time about carbohydrate units, and uh, uh, my aunt and my mom had to learn how to how to inject him with insulin. And uh, you know, I, I I do remember at in at these days the cannulas were were not what you have today. These were huge cannulas, and the injections were extremely painful. We had to sterilize them on our own in little uh, metal containers. And uh, so for the first few years, uh, while Max was still small, it, it was a very, very traumatic experience. When he became a teenager, he actually got better. And uh, by the age of 20, he seemed to manage quite well. He was even allowed by the family to travel to Italy and Spain and had a wonderful time, uh, met a young woman and got married. And we, we thought things are, are going well. And then at age 27, 28, it became clear 
they developed kidney, developed kidney failure. Now, at that time at the University of Munich, they had just started a kidney pancreas transplant program. And uh, of course, because I was a medical student there, I, I knew the surgeons. And uh, so it was highly recommended to have a kidney pancreas transplant, and which he had. And the technique was used, which uh, obviously I later, I later realized was a totally inadequate technique. And it lasted about six weeks. I was already in the United States. And when I visited him, I uh, examined him and uh, there was an obvious wound infection. And about six weeks later, he, he developed what is called uh, uh, arterial pseudoaneurysm and uh, he bled out and died. Uh, he was 31 at that time. So this was about around 1980 and I had just started my career as a surgeon. So I said, okay, it's time to uh, develop a better uh, surgical technique for pancreas transplantation because the one year mortality, according to the international pancreas transplant registry was 40%. Can you imagine having an operation and having a 40% chance to die within one year? Yeah, so, terrible. So I modified the technique and uh, very short, I mean, basically within a year or two, the, the mortality was reduced to less than 5%, which for a diabetic patient, uh, of course, mortality of 5% is not what you want to see, but it, it was dramatically better. And that, that operation made pancreas transplantation an acceptable procedure. Suddenly nephrologists who took care of diabetic patients and who had a very negative attitude to pancreas transplantation became comfortable referring their patient for a, patients for a kidney pancreas transplantation. Later we changed in 95, we changed the technique again. And now every center has well beyond 95%, sometimes 100% success rate, at least for the first year. Yeah, no, that's a huge, um, that's a huge contribution to, you know, people's health as well as to the surgical understanding of, uh, you know, what works best. I wonder, and that's a very personal story too. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, it's very, very, very difficult. Um, and I think it probably, you know, uh, probably added to your, your personal quest to, to make things better, which you definitely have. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about insulin. Uh, insulin is, uh, you know, it's a new company that's going to be released. Uh, there's a, there's a big um, press release coming out soon on the 29th. Um, so by the time this airs, people will have heard about it. But from my understanding, it is, you know, basically uh, a new, a very new approach rather than replacing genetic material. You have a construct that enhances existing cells in the liver because the liver is highly efficient at making proteins. They can, they can, it can already regulate glucose this an added uh, gene in the hepatocyte enables a small portion of these liver cells or hepatocytes to function like a, a pancreas. And, you know, so they sort of take it over. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, how you, you know, 
got into this whole realm and, you know, sort of uh, frame insulin's product in the context of the current body of work in T1D? Yeah, this is actually a story which is much more ancient than uh, it sounds right now, because right now it sounds like gene therapy, that's a brand new thing. But uh, as I recall, in, in, in 1997, 98, uh, a very famous researcher named James Thompson uh, developed the first uh, stem cell at the University of Wisconsin. And Jamie's lab and our lab, we were not too far apart. And uh, shortly after he, he published his paper in science, we had a meeting with him and his group and uh, the question, the question was addressed to me, what can you do with stem cells? And uh, my obvious answer was, perhaps we can make islet cells, islets of the pancreas to produce insulin. So, and uh, we left it at that, but the more I thought about it, uh, um, I, had, I had concerns about uh, the biology and some of these concerns still exist, but uh, I, um, I asked one of my younger partners to, uh, to focus on stem cells. Now, I knew at that time, or, or I sensed that it would be very difficult uh, to make a lot of stem cells for the millions of diabetic patients. So, I got together with, with my lab group and uh, I, I wrote on the blackboard what our long-term goal should be. Uh, because, you know, at that point, I had done pancreas transplantation for about 13, 14 years, and I had done about 500. And I said to myself, what are you doing? You, you help 500 people in, in 10, 12 years. And there, at this point, we are probably a million of type 1 diabetics in the United States. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So I wrote on the blackboard four, uh, four tasks. One, whatever research we are doing, at the end, the, the result has to be available for all diabetics, not just a few hundreds a year. <clears throat> Second, there should not be any major operation. As successful as pancreas transplantation became, it's a huge operation. And if something goes wrong, it's awful. And third, it had to be affordable. If we have so many patients, it cannot, like right now, some gene therapies cost millions of dollars. It, it, it had to be affordable for a lot of people. And number four, uh, there shouldn't be any concomitant uh, medical therapy required. Like in, in transplantation, you need to take these drugs. And sometimes these drugs have more side effects than the, than the diabetes has. So uh, it was counteractive. Counter, um, so these were the four points I wrote on the blackboard. And nothing has changed about these four points. But then I thought, how can we get to it? And the answer was gene therapy. Somehow inserting the insulin gene uh, somewhere into the body 
where it starts to make insulin and makes it for a long time. Now that, I, I tell you, if I wouldn't have been such a naive surgeon, I probably would have never put these four points on the blackboard because I had no idea how difficult it would be and, and what it really, really takes. So you had to be absolutely naive to, 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 to put that on the blackboard and say, this is what we're gonna set out to do. And I didn't think it would take us so long, but we're getting there. So uh, we started in the lab first very simply uh, to make the gene, which we thought would be suitable. Then we tested several uh, viruses. You know, in gene therapy, you need a virus, which is kind, kind of delivery mode. Let's just say it's a truck, which yes. brings the payload to the appropriate uh, space. So we, we tested several viruses, adenovirus, lentivirus, and uh, finally in the last few years, we realized that adeno-associated virus is, is the, best, the best way and safest way to go. So we can package our gene into the adeno-associated virus, we call it AAV, for short, um, and there are several types. The one we like is AAV number eight, and we package our gene in. But, you know, in contrast to many gene therapies, there is a little problem with diabetes. You not only have to produce the, um, the protein or the enzyme of choice, you have to produce it, uh, uh, in a regulated way. Yeah, on demand. On demand. If you eat your candy bar, insulin should be shooting up, glucose goes down. So the hard work for our lab was to develop a regulatory element. You could call it a thermostat, which can sense when the glucose goes up inside the cell. That, that, that genetic element uh, became active, we call it the promoter, and it, we call it the glucose sensitive promoter because it sends glucose concentrations. And yeah. that promoter then signaled to the insulin gene uh, to become active and make more insulin. When the glucose concentration fell, the promoter, the promoter settled down and the insulin gene settled down as well. So getting that control right took us about 10 years. And you call this, uh, the glucose-inducible regulatory element, you call it G-I-R-E, Gyre, I guess. And so Yeah, and so you have your vector, you have your AAV vector with the Gyre packaged inside. Yes. And then it's gonna be delivered to patients via how? Injection? Yeah. Obviously, you know, let's go back at our blackboard. It should be an easy, simple, possibly an outpatient procedure. Mm -hmm. Our dream is that the patient, the diabetic patient goes to the doctor uh, or doctor's office and gets an infusion. Maybe there's a 24 hour period of observation 
and then can go home and over a few weeks, the glucose will normalize. That's our dream. We are not there yet, but at least in, in, in animals, in small animals, uh, we are there. Now, we knew that the liver cells has many similarities to the pancreatic islet cells. It has two natural thermostat elements already there. So they help us a little bit to regulate. Also, the liver, as you all know, uh, as you know, uh, is a protein factory. There's no organ in the body which makes protein better than the liver. So having something, go, a gene go to the liver made a lot of sense. And molecular biologists have developed uh, very commonly used tricks to direct a, a, a vector to a certain organ or have it function in a certain organ. So we put some of these genetic elements in our, in our what we call our construct. So our, our vector only works in the liver. And so this uh, confers some advantages, correct? Because uh, the immune attack, well, first of all, some of the uh, pancreatic lymph nodes are implemented as where, you know, spaces where the memory cells might be sort of hanging out, lurking. Um, and they're, you know, that's close to the liver, but not directly and, you know, next to it. Uh, but really, this expression of insulin, how do you imagine the expression of insulin inside the hepatocyte? Will that confer immune um privilege status for the hepatocyte or, you know, is, is the immune system going to pick up on the fact that now, oh, these hepatocytes are now secreting insulin. Maybe I'm going to shut them down. What's your thoughts? Now, first of all, the good news is there is no autoimmunity. You know, there is not the autoimmunity, which you, for instance, would see in islet transplantation or pancreas transplantation, because our construct is in the liver cell, so that's not recognized by the autoimmune system. What's recognized by the immune system is the virus, which we are using. But fortunately, that immune response is very, very mild. And for instance, in mice and even in dogs, you don't even have to do anything. In patients, most likely, and I'm coming from the hemophilia experience, uh, you might have to use some mild immunosuppression for a few weeks to dampen the immune response to the virus, but then you can stop. There is no lifelong heavy immunosuppression uh, like you have in pancreas transplantation, prednisone, tagrolimus, cyclosporin, salsep. You don't need all that. You need for a short period of time some immunosuppression to dampen the response to the virus, and then uh, you can go off. This sounds amazing. And, um, you know, uh, this is really, if, if this can all be translated into humans, this would really be a game changer. So I'm celebrating that, you know, you are working in this space and, and moving forward into, I believe, dog models. Is that correct? Right. The reason why we were choosing dog models and the dog model I have been using is, is, is something which nobody else has done. I am choosing the diabetic dog. There are about 500 diabetic dogs in the United States, 
500,000, half a million being treated with insulin. That's an enormous number. And some very, very uh, famous diabetologists have compared a diabetic dog with a diabetic human. And they found that they are almost 99% identical. So we have something which is actually a gift for a clinical investigator. We have an almost perfect preclinical model. So we have now gotten permission from the FDA, from the Center of Veterinary, Veterinary Medicine to treat naturally autoimmune diabetic dogs. And we have started that. And uh, hopefully in a year from now, we can publish some results and hopefully we can show that we have some, at least some success, maybe at that time, not perfection, but uh, uh, substantial improvement. I guess, I, yeah, this is very optimistic and let's hope that this pushes forward. I think that um, I do have a question for you regarding the uh, autoimmune nature of the disease. So have you seen any kind of autoimmune uptick with the mice? Just to circle back, I might've missed that. But so if they, once, once the hepatocyte starts secreting insulin, sometimes insulin can be a, uh, or pre-pro-insulin can be uh, an autoimmune antigen. Is, is that the case in here or, or no? Are they just are the hepatocytes secreting insulin and flying under the radar of the uh, immune system? Uh, you know, um, in, in naturally occurring diabetes, the bulk of the autoimmunity is directed against the outer shell of the islet at the of certain protein structures. Again. Insulin to a certain degree, yes, but it's not the, the dominant immune response. And uh, to answer your question directly, we haven't seen it in mice. Uh, the dog experience is not large enough uh, to make any comments. Should it occur in humans, I think it would be very mild. That's great news. I think, um, do you think that there will be a subset of patients who, who might benefit more than others uh, from the insulin product? Or do you think it will be just sort of a blanket, uh, one, one size fits all? Uh, you know, obviously the brittle diabetic is always the one uh, who uh, benefits most from any advancement in, in management. The brittle diabetic probably is the one who benefits from the insulin pumps, the, the, the new insulin pumps, which are wonderful. Um, so the, this group of patients, which are very unstable, would certainly benefit most initially. But my personal goal is at the end of the day, any diabetic, uh, who is insulin dependent uh, should benefit from that very simple procedure. I, I am really excited to see how this all plays out. I wondered, you know, what's, um, you know, the, with the insulin, are you looking for collaborators, new hires? I mean, how are you planning yeah. to grow? Now, let me first say why, why insulin? Um, it became it became quite clear 
once we got uh, serious that we have to uh, work in in large animals that it would be very very difficult to get a massive amount of funding required from the usual funding sources i mean the nih is wonderful in uh, uh, sponsoring diabetes research the jdrf is wonderful but we are talking we are talking amounts of money which these agencies probably won't be able to provide the the diabetic dog is extremely uh, expensive uh, is an extremely expensive model so when i got closer to my retirement as a surgeon i needed a uh, something to do in my retirement and I had the good luck to meet some people, um, business people. I am not a business person at all, but I meet some, met some people, good friends who said, hey, let's start a company, let's raise some money and help you uh, to achieve that goal. And that is what Enzolin is about. So far, we have been very, very fortunate uh, to have uh, extremely experienced members on our advisory board, uh, people who already have gone from bench to the clinical application. So they have experienced the, the ultimate success in, in gene therapy. And I, I'm, I'm just so happy that they have joined us. I mean, who, who can get the, the best people in gene therapy on, on the advisory board of a, of a small startup? Well, I would also offer right here that I think that those people are understanding that this could be a real game changer and that it has such potential. I think that people that the, the fact that you have such tenured people on your advisory board indicates that this is um, a really important product and a company. I, I have to say they believe in it. They looked at our preliminary data and they believe in it. And uh, that, was, that was for me, you know, seeing the approval of these giants in the field of gene therapy, because I am not one of them. <laughs> I am a surgeon. Uh, approve what we have done uh, really, really boosted me. and. Uh, you know, I, I apologize. I came a little bit late today to the podcast. And the reason was I was in the laboratory injecting animals. So I, I'm doing hands-on experiments because I'm so excited to, to do what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I mean, if this is an exciting place to be. And I, you know, uh, if you are, I guess if you're looking for uh, new hires, Enslin will be putting that on, on their website shortly. Is that correct? Of course. Uh, as we are growing, we, we definitely will need very competent molecular biologists uh, who can help, uh, especially me, who is not a trained molecular biologist. I'm a cell biologist. My PhD is in cell biology uh, to to, to uh, acquaint myself with all the new technology which is available, uh, especially the quality control. One of the big problems in gene therapy is you have to get to a point where just like a medication, 
just like aspirin or, or Tylenol or, or your blood pressure medication, where every batch is identical. It's very, very difficult in gene therapy to have this consistency because it's a biological product. So we have a long ways to go. But uh, as I said, we see high quality of people who have joined us on our boards. Uh, we are already starting even at that stage to focus on quality control of the material we are having. So um, uh, I think we will get to this point. And also, you know, with the environment of gene therapy, I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of companies right now are already working on gene therapy. And we, we all stand on each other's shoulders. We all benefit from each other's knowledge. I think it's just a matter of time to get to this point where the technology is mature enough that we produce uh, batches of genes which are absolutely identical from, from one batch to another and offer it to as many diabetics as we can. Yes, well, this is an absolutely, um, you know, this is an, and this is an amazing research um, goal. And uh, of course, you know, the sugar science absolutely supports what you're doing and hopes that this can be expedited, hopes that the FDA will see this as something that needs to be supported and fast-tracked. And I mean, I, I would even offer that maybe someone like, you know, someone like Vertex is very uh, involved in quality control. They, they purchased SEMA, the stem cells that uh, Doug Melton produced, and um, they're yeah. bringing that to fruition. And so I would hope that maybe they will, you know, take a look at what you're doing too. So just, you know, I think, um, I also just think it's wonderful talking to you, seeing the depth of your um, footprint, I guess, in this field, just from a personal standpoint, all the way through the pancreatic transplants and now to this stage. And I wish you the very, very best. I think you're an amazing person. So thanks for talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me on your broadcast.